there are these weird things in DeFi, these assumptions that are made that make no sense. So one of them is that forks are bad. I don't, I, I can't wrap my mind around that one. Forks seem like an incredible growth mechanism where if you design for it, you design for it to be beneficial. If you, you design take for over. it. Yes. Yeah, yes. you have to design for it. Ditto this idea of sticky liquidity and trying to create all these time lock mechanisms and shit to, to get people not to move their liquidity out of your protocol. This is designed, and I'll get to, I keep saying XP, but I'll, I'll get to that in a second. This is designed where the, the, the length of time that somebody keep parks their money here doesn't matter. Actually, the more turnover, the better. And then the other idea that you need to create this culture of like, you know, three, three prisoners dilemma altruism, or else somebody can just break the protocol. That's ridiculous. You have to assume that every user is the most hostile, sharp, self-interested, asshole who just wants to drain as much liquidity as possible and the protocol needs to be designed to benefit from that level of aggression obviously we're, we're fostering a really great community around this and that is important for social and growth and sort of optics reasons and you want it to be a pleasant community for people to be a part of but we can't rely on the community being non-toxic and friendly to keep the protocol secure that's sure. that's where it starts to get really crazy in my mind To Mission DeFi with Brad Nickel, where we explore projects in decentralized finance that are innovating and driving our mission of financial freedom forward. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review Mission DeFi and spread the word by posting a tweet to the show. All opinions expressed by Brad Nickel or his guests are their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Black Knox, Material Indicators, or any other affiliated organizations. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Brad Nickel or his guests as an inducement to make a particular investment, follow a particular strategy, or become involved with any project. A project being featured on the show is not an endorsement of that project in any way. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Now, here's Mission DeFi with Brad Nickel. All right. I'm excited today to have Joey Roth from Dyad on the show. And I found Joey and Dyad through a friend of mine on Twitter and whom I've actually met on a call, Asfi, who I consider one of the, the biggest of the big brains in the analytical space in our DeFi world. So, and he wrote up a really cool summary of Dyad and how it kind of functions and the, the way it can be gamified to some extent, but I'm going to let Joey tell you all about that. But first of all, Joey, welcome to the show. Yeah. If you could tell us about yourself, where you are in the world and how you ended up in this world. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for having me. So I'm Joey based in San Francisco, California. My background is actually in industrial design and hardware product design. So oh. my educational background is mechanical engineering. Right out of school, I started designing and launching hardware products and sort of hardware-based companies. The last product I did, which right now is still ongoing in the process of acquisition, is a coffee device called Osma that uses acoustic cavitation instead of heat to extract coffee, which is a pretty cool device. Wow. And I worked on smart ovens before that, tea, tea designs, a lot of audio design as well. So a product I did called the Ceramic Speakers is still, it's been out of production for a little bit, but you know, talk about the secondary market, it has a very active secondary market. So yeah, I've always just been drawn to 
designing things and products that kind of maintain a value the longer that you use them. So designing using materials that develop a beautiful patina, designing experiences that, that kind of develop like a psychological patina, like a meaning the more that you engage with the ritual. That's always been super interesting to me. I got into DeFi and just sort of like ETH-based blockchain stuff about two years ago when ETH was really kind of you know, becoming known as this Turing complete programmable scarcity, you know, social computer system. What really kind of caught my attention and then became my obsession was this idea that you could have the same primitives that always made hardware design so exciting for me. Scarcity, longevity of ownership, identity tied to having acquired something and using that thing, that thing developing different traits based on how the, the holder of the thing was using it, how long they've had it. Those are all sort of the primitives that really make design so exciting for me and make engineering so exciting for me. And for the first time with, with blockchain and you know specifically smart contracts, those could become digital building blocks. And like, you know, software and digital is always definitely part of these products that I designed. There's always an app or an on-screen UI or some kind of a, you know, recipe sharing backend, digital signal processing that, you know, people could do different settings with. But it, software was always in such a supportive role to the hardware. Software on its own never felt substantial enough. It just always felt too ephemeral to, to design an entire product as just a software thing. Right. Blockchain completely changed that. And since then, this idea of, of designing things that can be, have a provenance and be immutable and have ownership and scarcity, but they are digital, is endlessly fascinating and, and the, the possibilities are just endlessly exciting. And, you know, it seems like over the last year, especially, but, but even before then, it's had the same effect on a lot of other people. And, and this ecosystem is just clearly becoming like a focal point for some of the smartest people I've ever, I've ever worked with and had conversations with. Oh, that's awesome to hear. And what a, that's a fascinating background. If we had more time, I really want to drive. I really would like to dive into that coffee maker yeah. because it sounds fascinating. But totally. so, is Dyad your first software-based project, or have you done other projects before Dyad in this space? It's definitely the first of this scale. So it's my first real DeFi project. It's the first project that you know I think has anywhere close to this potential to actually have an impact on the world, create positive change and really, you know, change things for the better. All of my hardware products, I think have had great impacts on the individual users' lives, but they weren't fundamentally new infrastructure for something as, you know, kind of base layer to human existence as a currency system. So sure. this is definitely new in that way i did a couple of nft sort of art slash code experimental projects before this just to really learn how the blockchain work learn some solidity understand you know how to automate things using bot just sort of like the the real sort of like basics of how to use these tools and how to design with this toolbox i have the pleasure and the honor of working with an incredibly talented founding engineer so i'm not actually the one writing the code on this, but having, having that level of understanding, I think is necessary just to, to design with this and in any material you're designing with, you have to have some level of understanding of how it, how it works on a technical level. So no, this is, this is the first 
DeFi protocol I'm, I'm building. But what's interesting is for immutable smart contracts, especially a mechanical engineering approach and really like a hardware product design approach tends to tends to work pretty well. And I'm finding that it works pretty well because once you deploy, it's actually really similar to hardware. Once you cut tools for a product, it's extremely expensive and time consuming to change anything. So the entire <laughs> development process is sort of staged that's interesting. to make sure, make sure you don't have to change anything once you, once you cut those tools, because that's like, you know, 200 to a million dollars capital expenditure, which you have to throw away if you made a mistake. So in a similar way, the protocol that we're building with Dyad, it's, it's designed that it will not be changeable once it deploys. So the, the development process that we've created is, is really similar actually to the EVT, DVT, TVT gating process that you would bring to any hardware product. And then actually the design itself, like literally how do you stabilize something volatile like ETH? How do you generate value from that stabilization process so people participate and create the, the buffer for the stability? I mean, this is basic, you know, active damper mechanic, you know, regenerative damping mechanical engineering stuff. So on a on an actual like technical design level, you know, slightly abstracted, it, it's definitely working that into a gas efficient and secure solidity or viper contract is a whole other set of skills but the actual design piece which i'm going to go over in a sec that's very much a mechanical engineering type approach it's interesting actually the uniswap founders also which is kind of curious yeah yeah that, i find that very interesting because i can certainly see how this applies i can see how the component building process that you have to go through the thinking about because you when you're thinking about a piece of hardware you're not only thinking about will this work, but you also have to think about how these items will fit together and then how it impacts not only the functioning of the device, but the user experience on the front end of using that device, which it sounds like you were very focused on with the, with the hardware that you were creating. And I can yeah. actually see how, completely see how that engineering background is absolutely applicable to the complexity of thinking through all of the things that could or could not go wrong in in a solidity contract or contracts and in a protocol like this and the complexity that goes with it and hoping and thinking about how those pieces will function together and what all of the potential down and upsides of releasing that could be. I think that's uh, that's fascinating. It's interesting because you're the first hardware engineering person I've met in the space that's leading a project. But I have been fascinated with the scientists, the former scientists and the attorneys who have mm. gone on to lead DeFi projects. And I think all of them at different levels have to think through the interactions the complexity of components of the worlds that they came from so that and they have to be able to apply it to what they're doing and what they're building here. So I think that's that's actually very cool. One of the things I love about this space is the varied backgrounds in the space, but I love the idea of hardware engineering approach applied to building a protocol. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, you know, there's there's things that we have to do with this that I've never had to do with any hardware project. Like we're right now recently onboarded two really excellent quants with an HFT background they're building a Monte Carlo simulation because this is such a path dependent system. Um, uh, and we're basically running it, you know, doing the Brownian motion equations that I haven't looked at since college, pretty much I mean, sort of like <laughs> infinite, infinite path analysis, which is wow. necessary for something like this. It's a close to non-deterministic system once you get into it, 
but you know, I haven't again done that since college. So there's definitely layers of of specialization and complexity which are part of this. But in my hardware projects, there were those as well, and I just learned to sort of plug in the right people to right. those who could who could do that and contribute those specialized parts to the project as needed. So yeah, it, it is it is similar, and that it's it's similar in the way that is always got me to obsess about a project until it's successfully launched which is exactly what you said that interaction of engineering and human factors creating something that is really useful and compelling to use for people do, do people in the hardware world that know you think you're a little nuts for venturing into this <laughs> yeah it's it's, it's or even your wife <laughs> well no my wife is completely supportive nice. yeah she's she's actually she came up with the name dyad oh, she's nice. she's a pretty she's been part of all of my projects she's she's probably my most trusted trusted advisor in a lot of ways awesome. but yeah she's 100 percent on board with this no but other people in the hardware space yeah i think it's it's sort of like people i've spoken to from the art world when nfts really became a thing i think that a new new and potentially disruptive technology really separates the people who are excited about new tools from the people who fear new tools. And you often don't see that in your your peers until something new comes up, like, like NFTs in the art world, or yeah, I, I wouldn't say DeFi in the like industrial design hardware world is the same thing as NFTs for the art world. But I think just talking about this and talking about doing doing something that is ultimately, you know, a financial engineering project coming from this sort of specialized hardware product world there's definitely some head scratching i think there's curiosity i mean engineers tend to be especially entrepreneurial engineers tend to be pretty open to new things sure and you know i i've kind of gotten to the point with this crypto overall i've only been in it for about two years but already it's like you know there will be people who are just against it and i haven't really encountered that with anything else i've done the the level of opposition and kind of unthinking knee-jerk opposition in some ways and i think like most people who spent you know a year or two in the space it's it's like there's so much to do here and there's so many exciting opportunities there's so many smart people who already get it that it's almost like a waste of time to try to argue with people who already have sort of a an uninformed negative view of it i think that sure it's clear that it's going to become a greater and greater part of just our civilization's infrastructure. And if they want to discover that, you know, years down the road, that's fine. It's not yeah. my job to make sure they discover it now. I've discovered it now. Enough right. people have that I just need to put my energy towards that. I think that makes a lot of sense. A, a, a friend of mine's running for state house in, in Florida here, and he's pro crypto and DeFi. And some woman sent him a nasty gram message saying he was horrible and what a horrible person he was for doing this. He's a Democrat, so not supposed to. And uh, he wrote back, he wrote me and said, Hey, how would you think I should respond to these criticisms? I said, well, number one, I'm not sure you should respond to these criticisms. I know a politician always wants to try to make everyone a vote their voter, but you're yeah. not going to convince this person to change their yeah. mind. So, okay. So I want to get a little bit of the the backstory of how you came up with this idea and and then yeah. we'll climb into what it is and how it works but was this an approach to a, a a problem you saw hey i i want a way to solve the problem of of decentralized stable coins algorithmic stable coins and make it work or was this something where you were kind of thinking about the process and the, the space in general and it struck you one day 
Yeah, this I I saw the opportunity for Dyad at this intersection point of number one, stable coins are I think one of the most clearly proven out use cases for crypto currently. Sure. Um, you know, as opposed, you know, you could put a number of other things at that level, but I think stable coins are one of them. Like I said, the shopkeeper in Ethiopia who's using tether on tron or whatever it is to to buy goods on alibaba i think that's happening all over the place yep. stable coins there's clearly a lot of demand and a lot of a lot of work to be done for that product that combined with the fact that the existing products in that space are all flawed and by saying they're all flawed i want to be very clear i have tremendous respect for the incumbents in the space especially the more decentralized projects MakerDAO and frax and ohm that have laid the groundwork for me to even be able to think about a lot of the concepts we're using for Dyad. So I'm not in any way fighting those projects. I'm not bearish on them. I think that they were really, really, really important for proving that this is even possible. And I'll definitely put Liquidy Rye in that category because they're fully immutable, which I think is an yeah. even greater evolution of the whole concept. But because those projects exist and because they all together, you know, including Circle and Tether, I think the total value locked in stables right now is like 150 billion or something. That even given the very bearish outlook on crypto, it just proves that there is an immense demand here. It's an immense demand combined with imperfect products that are out now. And that just immediately becomes sort of my engineering mind goes into overdrive. Okay, how do I, how do I use the tools available right now? How do I launch something that's very relevant for what the, the early community, the mid community, and then the larger user, user base would want to want to scale and want to use and what are the what are the tools including a team that i can use to to execute this so yeah i just i kind of started thinking about it and once my mind gets going in that way i can't really stop it so that <laughs> thinking and everything reading all the white papers reading the code learning viper just so i could read the the curve code all of that just led to the design that we have right now and like i said even in the last week after two lunches with aspi the design has changed pretty substantially but now that we have our sims like kind of like you know 25 percent up and running we can start to falsify some of the the ideas that we have and right now it's proving to to be pretty good well let's climb yeah. into what you came up with or what's involved into to solve the problem we're going to talk about some slides that you sent me and we're going to put those into the recording, but I want to let people know that are just listening that I will also make that available for them to download. Yeah. So I'll start with what the components of this protocol are. So Dyad is a, like I said, decentralized protocol for monetary policy and creating this hard peg stable coin. So the components are four. There is the ETH collateral vault, which all of these stable tokens are collateralized one-to-one with ETH and it doesn't accept any other type of collateral. So no USDC, no Tether, nothing else. Again, I firmly believe that a protocol can only be as decentralized as the most centralized thing it's built on. So the second we allow ETH in as collateral, or the second we allow a circle or Tether in as collateral, we are exposed to all of the regulatory and censorship risk that those projects are exposed to. So ETH is the only collateral. At any time, the protocol's ultimate, ultimate prime directive is anybody holding one of these dyad tokens can at any time come to the protocol and redeem it for one usd worth of eth from the collateral vault so regardless of eth's price 
everybody who is holding a dyad token needs to be able to redeem it for one dollar's worth of ETH. So full one-to-one collateralization. That will put into context the rest of what the protocol is there for. The rest of the protocol essentially is there to allow the circulating supply of dyad. So all the dyad tokens that are out there to expand and contract given the change in the value of ETH and thus the change in the value of the collateral vault. Okay. So it's useful to think of it as ETH is this bumpy road. The dyad protocol is this active damping system, like a shock absorber, basically. And then the car, the cabin, is the stable token that always needs to remain stable. So nice. if you could frame it that way, that's that's sort of a, a good way to think about this. I love that. Um, that's awesome. Cool. So and and just to to strain the metaphor a little bit more. Uh, dyad is a regenerative, regenerative damping system. So similar to what you'd see on some EV designs, the more volatility there is, the more volatile ETH is, the more energy the damper will generate. So it's like really a, if you are investing in the volatile side of the protocol, it is definitely a long ball position. Your position yeah. will benefit and you will gain not so much on the price direction of ETH, although, you know, it is somewhat directionally exposed, but definitely on the volatility of ETH. The more volatile ETH is, the more value will be accrued by people who invest in the, the volatile side. So the way that you use this protocol, there is the ETH collateral vault, there's Dyad, the stable token, and then there are 10,000 DNFTs. And DNFT just means Dyad NFT. These are standard okay. ERC 721 NFTs. Um, totally tradable on OpenSea or LooksRare, or now Uniswap has their NFT marketplace or OTC, whatever you want to do, their NFTs. They have three on-chain metadata traits. So these traits are dyad balance, total dyad minted, and XP. So I'll get to what these three traits mean, but these are, these are central to how the, the protocol functions. So if you hold one of these DNFTs, you are able to mint dyad. Nobody else can mint Dyad. So unless you hold one of these, you cannot just go to the protocol and execute the minting function, give it your, your ETH, and then you come back with some Dyad tokens. The only way to have the protocol make Dyad tokens using ETH is if you hold one of these NFTs. So let's assume you are in a DNFT holder. You hold one of these 10,000. You can then execute the minting function in the contract, which you can deposit your ETH from your wallet. It goes into the collateral vault then the protocol will mint the USD denominated number of dyad tokens given the ETH USD price at that point. And we're, our, our Oracle design is getting a lot of attention, obviously, because for an immutable protocol, we're not able to switch Oracles. So if Chainlink goes down or if Teller goes down, we have backup after backup after backup. And this is sort of a very tactical example of really standing on the shoulders of a lot of those other protocols I mentioned, both Beanstalk and Liquidy have excellent protocol redundancy or Oracle redundancy yeah. designs, yeah. which we are forking liberally for this. So nice. yeah, nice. we have a lot of focus on that ETH USD price feed, but that's the only external Oracle that we use. So you mint, you have a, one of these NFTs, you mint your dyad, your dyad immediately gets deposited into another vault, which is the, we call it the damping vault. But this is a vault that just holds dyad. And this is where, you know, it, it really requires some detailed explanation. When you mint your dyad and you have one of these NFTs, your NFT as one of its traits will record how much of that dyad you've minted. So how much of this buffer vault you own or this NFT owns is recorded as a metadata trait in your NFT. 
So if you want to withdraw your dyad from that buffer vault, you would have to have your NFT in your wallet and then the protocol would see, okay, the dyad deposited trait says you have 5,000 dyad. You can deposit, you can withdraw up to 5,000 from this shared damping vault. And that okay. would, then you'd get those dyad into your wallet as stable coins. But the default is if you mint dyad, it goes directly to this buffer vault and it's recorded how much of that vault you have a claim to as a metadata trait of your NFT. Okay. So from the UX perspective, the way that we're building our UI, it's going to seem like you're, you're just getting the dyad into your NFT and your NFT is almost like a wallet in and of itself. And you can go into the UI or you could even go on Etherscan and see what is the dyad balance in this NFT. So from the user's perspective, the dyad is actually inside the NFT. That would not be worth trying to have make happen on chain where the ERC-20 is inside the ERC-721. Sure. You can do it, but it would just be needlessly complicated. So all that dyad is actually going to a shared vault that just holds dyad and then it's recorded in your NFT how much you have. So okay. when the, the dyad that's in that vault is, is basically the protocol can expand or contract that amount of dyad based on the change in ETH price. So the protocol has the option to burn dyad that's in that vault when the price of ETH goes down and the total circulating supply needs to be con constrained in order to maintain that redeemability of every token. And the protocol also mints new dyad and deposits it directly into that vault when the price of ETH goes up and you don't want every token to be over collateralized. So that's really that vault, that, that damping vault. Think of that as literally the shock absorber. That's literally the thing that expands and contracts as the price of ETH goes up and down more or less. Okay, and so if I yeah. if I deposited, let's say ETH's at $1,000, I deposited yeah. one ETH, I would get 1,000 die in the vault um, yeah. referenced via the NFT. If ETH dropped to $750, I don't know if it's one-to-one -one in the in the formula, yeah. but some amount of the dyad that I'm entitled to in the vault would get burned in order to yes. maintain that price. Exactly. And it would just be, before we get into XP, which is sort of the, the layer on top of this that makes it really competitive, that would just be a pro rata burn. So depending on what percentage of dyad in that vault mm -hmm. you own, you would be liable for that percentage of burn. Okay. Just a okay. typical pro rata thing. On the flip side, when the price of ETH goes up, you are entitled to an increase also pro rata, depending on how much diet you have in that vault. Got so it. you're basically just exposed to the price movement of ETH when you have your dyad invested into this buffer vault, this, this damping vault, and you hold a DNFT. Your, your dyad balance will, will basically increase or decrease according to the price movement of ETH. So you could theoretically, as the price moves up and down, be shaving off dyad on the upside whenever you wanted to. Um, mm -hmm. And as it drops again, wait. And then as it goes back up again, shave off those, I guess you'd call them profits on your original investment, depending on where the price of ETH currently is. Yeah, you absolutely could. So this is how dyad enters circulation. The only way that dyad enters circulation is what the D, one of the DNFT holders withdraws dyad through their NFT from this damping vault, and then they have it as a stable token in their wallet, and they could use it throughout DeFi, they could use it as collateral, they could trade it for something, whatever. That's circulating in, outside the protocol now. Those nice. tokens that are circulating can never be expanded or contracted, minted or burned by the protocol. They're completely, once they're out of that vault, and you can't reinsert them. part of the DNP. 
Exactly. Well, no, you can put them back if you, you can put more dyad in. But once they're outside the vault, they're completely out of the control of the protocol. So you Got can it. compare this if you're familiar with Ampleforth, which was sort of sure. like a primitive stablecoin project. For Ampleforth, it had the same thing where in order to maintain a stable peg of each token, the, the circulating supply could be changed at a moment's notice. So if you had yeah. 100 Ample in your wallet, you could wake up the next morning and it's 80 or it's 120. What, what's different here is that that only happens if the stable tokens are in your NFT or part of your NFT balance and in that vault. Once right. you remove them, you're not getting there's never going to be any change. You're completely, those or tokens losing. are completely isolated from any price movement of ETH, isolated from any volatility. It is a true stable token at that point. They're just worth one USD. That's it. You can't do anything exactly. beyond that. But if you exactly. want to insert them back into the protocol, you can make them. Yes. Um, alter and change based on the value i got it okay, exactly very cool exactly now the thing to keep what this implies is as a dnft holder the more tokens you have out that you've minted but are outside of your dnft the greater your leverage on your exposure to eth because you have to think that if half your tokens are outside hmm. half your tokens are in all of the pnl exposure from all of your tokens is is focused on the tokens that are still in there so you basically have, if you have 50% out, 50% in, you've basically given yourself a 2x leverage position on ETH. Oh, very interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hadn't thought about it. Yeah, I, I hadn't connected all the way through how much I'd taken out and the value right. I'd lost versus the ETH that's it. Okay, I get exactly. it. Exactly. And that's up wow. to each individual DNFT holder, how much they want to keep in, how much they want to put out. And in aggregate across all 10,000, we hope that we get some sense of ETH implied volatility based on the choices that dnft holders make not saying this becomes an eth iv oracle but it sort of allows us to not need to have that in order to maintain a stable level of collateralization because what happens is if you take all of your diet out or you let's say you have 90 percent of it outside and you have some crazy amount of leverage you're just a total degen and eth goes down and it it your burn so your burn liability is always assessed based on the total number of to diet tokens you've minted not how much you have in your dnft uh -huh. so if you've uh -huh. taken out all of them and you owe more in terms of the burn that's required from you than you have in there your dnft goes into the negative in terms of diet balance and when it's in the negative it will continue to accrue more debt you're still liable for the tokens that are out there but you're not you're not benefiting at all from that burn. And I'll get into XP in a second, and that's how you benefit from the burn. But basically, then you have the choice of either putting more dyad in and clearing the, the the unburned tokens that need to be burned, basically your debt, or you put it on the secondary market and allow the secondary market to price your distressed DNFT. And you could sell it to somebody with that debt. That new buyer then has to clear the debt before they. It's sort of. It's sort of like our version of a liquidation mechanism that's just a little more elegant and less less punitive towards the, the degen. Because it doesn't feel as this, bad. <laughs> you'll still have this asset that you can sell for something. It'll yeah. just be distressed. It makes you feel a yeah. little better about the whole thing. That's interesting. Exactly. I, I I actually psychologically I love that model and I can see I can see the thought process that went through that. That's that's fascinating because that certainly is a lot better than saying, you know, you you you've you've been liquidated. Right. Right. That's awesome. Still have the thing. And there's always the higher the TVL of the protocol, the greater just the value of having a an, a, a, an opportunity to get exposure to it will be. So every every one of the 10,000, no matter how distressed one of them is, 
will have some value because people just want the option of participating in this. So even if you've totally, you know, accrued a ton of debt and, you know, you're kind of the cheapest DNFT on OpenSea, there will be a lot of buyers for that who just want to bargain and want a cheap way into the protocol. And that, that just ensures that, yeah, there's always... Even if somebody just acts totally wild and total degen with their DNFT, there will be a mechanism to to recollateralize the tokens that they minted. That's interesting. Yeah, no, I I really love that, and I I can't wait to understand the mechanics, and, and I think it'll take thought outside of this conversation of of playing this. And I've got to go back and reread Asfi's thread too, as well. Yeah, yeah because I think sure. that's a lot of what he was getting at with it. So. Here's the interesting thing that my mind hasn't grasped yet is have you modeled out, you know, I'm assuming you'd love to see this thing, you know, have, you know, hundred billion out in the market, serving the market, because you have this vision of creating a stable coin that every one can use. Have you modeled out what, what kind of volatility is required to get there and kind of the actions? I don't mean like scientifically modeled it out, but kind of the actions of what users yeah. would have to be, what kind of users you'd have to have to get there. Yeah. So, so those are two great questions. I answer them separately. So we are absolutely working on scientifically modeling this out in a really rigorous way because you can tell it is, and I haven't even talked about XP yet that that we'll get to as part of the next question, but you can tell that even though it's a fairly simple mechanical design, it is very path dependent and there's a lot of complexity in terms of how, given a change in both ETH spot price and implied volatility, users would would play this and the choices that they would make in terms of diet allocation inside and outside their NFTs, how much they put into their position, and then the secondary market for, for these NFTs, what that looks like and how secondary market price action plays into the incentive structure of, of being in. In terms of the users and the, the growth mechanism, so initially, the DNFT holders are going to be our seed investors and individual investors, no question. Nice. Uh, where this gets really interesting is because the only way you can mint Dyad is by holding one of these DNFTs and the value of the DNFTs actually grows as Dyad circulation grows, the, the eventual holders of the majority of these DNFTs, if things go you know, as we want them to go in terms of growth, are going to be other protocols. Protocols will naturally want to compose around these DNFTs because it gives them access to both, you know, the, the backing of our ETH collateral vault and also the ability to mint the stablecoin and to build sort of automations around minting the stablecoin as part of their protocol. Our plan for getting deployed onto L2s and Alt L1s that are EVM compatible is this idea of fractal forking where, you know, part of, you know, one of the big fears that a lot of early protocols have is that somebody will just fork their code and vampirically steal all their liquidity and basically, you know, front run their whole idea. The way we design this is it would be much more beneficial even for a pretty hostile self-interested actor to instead of forking and trying to vampirically siphon liquidity from us, you could literally acquire one or a couple of these DNFTs and deploy the dyad contract over those dnfts so you could create a new set of ten thousand, let's call them l2 dnfts with their own xp their own ability to create dyad that is basically composed on top of one or a couple more original l1 dnfts and would be part of their balance sheet all that's happening and we want that to happen we want people to fractionalize these we want protocols to build around them we want this to become 
real base level infrastructure so that a user who's, let's say that shopkeeper in Ethiopia who wants to use Dyad now to make a purchase on Alibaba, they're using a Dyad fractal fork that's been deployed on, you know, ZKNet or something. And they're able to do a transaction extremely cheaply, more cheaply than it would be using Tether on Tron. But it is it is settling back on one of the original DNFTs and is recorded as part of that DNFTs on-chain metadata balance sheet. That's a fascinating model. That's yeah. that's really amazing. That's very cool. So you could it's almost in your in in your model to encourage that, to encourage Absolutely. protocols. I mean, people that's doing the that. whole thing. Yeah, there are these weird things in DeFi, these assumptions that are made that make no sense. So one of them is that forks are bad. I don't I, I can't wrap my mind around that one. Forks seem like an incredible growth mechanism where if you design for it and you design for it to be beneficial, if you, you design take for over. It. Yes. Yeah, yes. you have to design for it. Ditto this idea of sticky liquidity and trying to create all these time lock mechanisms and shit to, to get people not to move their liquidity out of your protocol. This is designed, and I'll get to, I keep saying XP, but I'll, I'll get to that in a second. This is designed where the, the, the length of time that somebody keep parks their money here doesn't matter. Actually, the more turnover, the better. And then the other idea that you need to create this culture of like, you know, uh, three, three prisoners dilemma altruism, or else somebody can just break the protocol. That's ridiculous. You have to assume that every user is the most hostile, sharp, self-interested asshole who just wants to drain as much liquidity as possible. And the protocol needs to be designed to benefit from that level of aggression. Obviously, we're, we're fostering a really great community around this, and that is important for social and growth and sort of optics reasons and you want it to be a pleasant community for people to be a part of but we can't rely on the community being non-toxic and friendly to keep the protocol secure that's sure. that's where it starts to get really crazy in my mind that makes a ton of sense i love that philosophical approach and i don't want to get too far off a tangent here but do yeah. you do you expect your i don't even i don't even know for sure your kind of where your launch status is with this whole thing right now yeah, so right now we have basically locally deployed hard hat type environment versions of the smart contracts running. If anybody is interested and wants to clone our GitHub repo, I will connect you with our, our founding engineer. He could absolutely get you set up. More and more people are taking a look at that code, so that's really good. By in about 60 days, we're planning on our RinkB deployment. So once we're nice. on testnet, we're going to be able to have a bug bounty program. We're doing audits with Trail of Bits and Open Zeppelin, and we're doing a sort of test run, like user test program using like 200 people who are basically going to own some quantity of these rink BD NFTs and actually be able to run like a week long user test simulation, given the real price of ETH, what, how people use it, what, what the strategies are that people execute. And then middle of November, we're targeting for a mainnet deployment and an nice. actual launch. Do you expect that a majority of your community will be the holders of these 10,000 DNFTs? Because I'm sitting here thinking about, you know, as, as a community member, I can see people being excited about the concept behind this whole thing. And I know yeah. there are people that will engage and be a part of the community because they want to help it succeed. But on a, from an incentives perspective, the primary incentives here are are relevant to the besides the ecosystem benefit is is related to the people that hold the 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 nfts right that's if if you want to make money on this protocol that's where you'll be able to do it 
Absolutely. So any upside you'll capture by holding dyad, unless other people want to create liquidity tools with the dyad stable token that they incentivize, we're not going to incentivize any liquidity pools. Our incentives are all in this game. There's no benefit in terms of upside exposure to just holding dyad the token. All of the upside is captured right in the in the DNFTs, both holding the positions in terms of dyad accrual as that that active damping system operates and stabilizes against ETH and also holding something that will appreciate in the secondary market. Um, on day one, though, we're already working on sort of composing protocols that will allow greater access to this. So one of them that we're working on mm. is FT rental protocol, where holders of DNFTs who just want passive income nice. and don't want to have to check this thing can essentially put their DNFTs out to be rented by people who want to play the game and, and trade and, and really make money. And then they, the, the holder either gets a cut of their upside or some flat rate rental. And then the person who's renting keeps the rest of the upside. So there's that. There That's is nice. uh, fractionalization stuff. Yeah, fractionalization yeah. stuff. We're making sure that we can compose. There are already a bunch of NFT fractionalization protocols out there. We're ensuring that we compose with those on day one. So if somebody wants to stick their DNFT in there and issue tokens against it, you can definitely do that. So from, from the very beginning, these DNFTs, yes, you could hold one or hold multiple as an individual, and you'll see a lot of upside from that most likely, but they're all, they're primitives. I mean, the, by, you know, by a year in, by the time we're at a pretty significant TVL, most of the original individual holders, the buy pressure on these DNFTs will be so great from other protocols, from whales, whoever, institutionals at a certain point that they will almost certainly be incentivized to sell them and, and realize a ton of profit from that. Nice. That's awesome. Do you guys have a price point yet on the original initial minting? Minting is free. At launch, the minting of the DNFTs is completely free. There's a minimum dyad deposit in each, in each NFT, 5,000, that is dyad that you own. So you can withdraw that if you want to after you get your NFT. But that's mainly to ensure that the protocol has a certain amount of TVL on day one and that enough Makes liquidity sense. that it's that it's kicking and it's working for everybody. And also just a basic prevention of like civil attacks and botting. We don't want somebody, because it is a free mint for the NFTs, we don't want somebody just scooping up, you know, 30% of them and then sitting on them and not doing anything with it. That's smart. That's smart. All right. So let's get to XP because I know yes. we're leaving out a whole bit. I, I think I've been afraid of it. So let's yeah. get into it. <laughs> okay. So XP <laughs> is what makes this what makes this really fun. What I what I just described, I think would be an okay protocol, but it's kind of boring, it's already right? fun. It's like basic but, but, but yeah, it's I guess. basic DeFi stuff. You can dial in the amount of leverage you want. Yeah, it's fun to have an NFT. It's fun that each NFT controls the monetary supply in its own little way. But there's a lot of other ways in DeFi that you could get exactly the position that you get with Diet at that point. So XP changes that. XP is really the differentiator. We call it XP because it's useful to think of it as experience points, the way that experience points are used in an RPG or other games now, where it's literally the more damage you take and survive, the more XP you gain. So it literally is experience points. The way you get XP, you can probably intuit a little bit, basically, is when the protocol burns your dyad that you have in your NFTs, you gain XP. So you're rewarded for providing liquidity that the protocol can use to, to burn, basically, and prevent the, the stablecoin from coming off peg. So that's the main, accruing XP to your DNFT. And let's be really clear, XP is not a token. You can't take your XP and dump it and sell it to somebody else. It's not a farm token. It is a DNFT 
linked metadata trait that is tied to the DNFT that had the dyad that was burned in it. So what, what that ultimately does is it incentivizes holders to provide liquidity for this active damper so that it has enough travel basically to absorb large fluctuations in ETH. That is our, XP is our primary liquidity incentive. So then the question is, well, okay, cool. Your, your NFT can accrue XP. What does XP do? So XP acts as a multiplier on gains when the protocol is minting new diet, when the price of ETH goes up. Remember previously I said, that's just a pro rata distribution of new tokens based on how much dyad you have in the vault. Well, XP modifies that distribution. So if you have a high proportion of XP, you will get more of that new dyad that's minted when the price of ETH goes up than you would if it was just everybody had the same amount of XP and it was purely based on how much dyad you have in there. So XP acts as a multiplier on your gains per dyad token that you have. And on the flip side, when it comes to burning, XP acts as a buffer on your burn liability. So again, the more XP you have, the less dyad you're required, the, the protocol will burn from your DNFT when it allocates its, ah, its burn liability okay. across all of them. Okay. So it's, it's a modifier on that mint and burn pro rata system. And that's tied to the NFT. So you can sort of think like XP becomes the main differentiator for secondary market value. The higher an NFT's XP, because when you're selling on the secondary market, all of your dyad is pulled out. You're not buying, dyad is just a stable token. You're not buying somebody's dyad balance. You're buying the amount of XP this DNFT has accrued. So that becomes the real price differentiator on secondary. And that's another incentive for accruing XP. Uh, even if you don't care about your position in the protocol, by accruing more XP, you will be able to fetch a higher price on secondary for your nice. DNFT. So let's get into, if we can go back to the, the slides for a sec. Uh, yeah, yeah. question that you want to explore. Well, I, I, so I just want to, well, you're going to explain it some more, but I mean, what I have from this is, is that P is acting as kind of a buffer against how much DYAD gets burned by the protocol when it yep. has to burn DYAD in the vault. And so yep. your proportional amount becomes burned, becomes less, the more XP you have. And you Correct. can earn more XP by having more DYAD in the protocol because XP is rewarded to you based on the impacts of the burns. Yes. And it Got acts it. in a similar way. It's a multiplier on your gains when the protocol is minting new diet, when the price of ETH has gone up and it needs to expand the supply you are entitled to more of that pie, a greater slice of that pie, depending on your portion of XP. Awesome, got it, okay, yeah. cool. So let's be, all right, well, let's go to the curves. This will explain it, and then I'll sort of explain the game mechanics behind it. So if you wanna join me on this slide, and I'll describe, for people who can't see, I'll describe really clearly what we're seeing. Yeah. Basically, the, the effect of XP across these 10,000 NFTs is thus. The, the top 20% or so, of NFTs by XP. So XP, the effect that it has on minting and burning allocation, that's always based on your proportional amount of XP. The absolute amount of XP you have, it will always be going up for everybody, but it depends, what matters is what portion of it you hold. So if you're in okay. the top 20% of XP comparatively, what you basically do is you get upside exposure as a, as a leverage position. So you could have like 3X upside exposure to the price movement of ETH. Your downside exposure is under leverage. So you would have like 0.5X nice. downside exposure, which 
is kind of a magical position if you think about it. It yeah. means as 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 long as ETH is volatile, it's like a ratchet on that random motion. It is going in one direction for you and it's going up. You are getting, you know, if it goes down, you're you're liable for, for 0.5x of what it would be if you're just holding ETH. If it's going up, you get 3x what it would be if you're just holding ETH. Nice. So it is, it's if you needed to compare it to a position, it would be like a covered call combined with a long ETH, like a leverage long position on ETH, except the downside of that leverage long is eliminated. So really it's kind of magically good position. Yeah. Uh, how is that possible sustainably? How is that not a complete Ponzi scam? Well, <laughs> the reason it's possible <laughs> is due to these XP mechanics. The bottom 80% by XP are basically giving up their upside exposure to that top 20% and they're absorbing the downside exposure from that top 20%. So 80% of DNFP holders have a PL exposure to ETH that is worse than just holding ETH. They have under 1x upside exposure and greater than 1x downside exposure. So the obvious question becomes, why would anybody sign up for that? That, that sounds terrible. The reason is XP and the XP accrual curve. So the XP accrual curve makes it so that the lower you are on that totem pole, the lower you are on the XP leaderboard, the more efficiently you will accrue XP for every dyad burned. So you could sort of get how combined with the fact that you're having less of your XP burned because of that buffering effect and you're gaining less XP per dyad burn, the higher up you are, you your dyad accrual for every burn cycle basically approaches zero as you're at the top whereas when you're at the bottom in one of those really low you know low upside high downside exposure positions you're gaining xp really efficiently for each one of your dyad that's burned so you are able to climb that ladder back up much faster right. than somebody who's at the top somebody at the top is in constant defense mode needing to plow more and more dyad into their position very inefficient XP accrual to sort of try to fend back the people who are coming up behind them. Uh, and this, you know, these two curves, this like logarithmic fall off of XP accrual efficiency and this exponential increase in diet efficiency as go up, they're essentially mirror images of each other. You know, we're a big part of this Monte Carlo sim is that we need to really dial in these curves, obviously, to make the whole mechanism yeah, work. Sure. But that's why, that's why people, it would be worth it to stay in one of those lower positions, to accrue more XP to your NFT, bring it up that leaderboard and either actually ride it all the way to the top or just accumulate XP efficiently and sell it for a profit on secondary and then keep flipping them, flipping them, flipping them, always investing Dyad back into the floor DNFP that you have, accruing some XP and then flipping it back on secondary. And that would almost always be a profitable trade because the most efficiently you can accrue XP is one XP per dyad burned. That's the very, very, very most efficient position. And then it just gets less efficient as you go up until once you're at the top, it's like 0.001 XP for one dyad burned. I want to make sure I understand something here. First yeah. of all, I'm blown away, but I, I want to make sure I understand one piece of what you just said, which is yeah. flipping it, the XP on the market. The only way I can flip the XP is to flip the NFT. Is that correct? Yes. This is okay. really, really good. I just want to make sure. Because I just want to make think, sure. Imagine, imagine if XP were an ERC20 token. Right. It would, it would just be a hyperinflationary dump as quickly as you can farm token. And we sure. all know how that plays out in DeFi. Yeah. Because it is a trait that you can only cash in basically by selling your DNFT 
and there will only ever be 10,000 of these NFTs, they're totally non-inflationary, we can, we can create that hyperinflationary incentive without creating those negative externalities that come with a hyperinflationary token. So it's our way using a DNFT, an NFT trait rather than an actual token to create this, you can call it Ponzinomics, call it whatever you want. The fact that it's not a token means it won't have those negative externalities. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. That's brilliant. I, I, this is so exciting to me. I, 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 I want to see a game. I want to see some kind of game interface to the leaderboard. Like I want to oh, see totally. <laughs> I want to see a horse race or space yes. spaceships or something on it because no. it sounds like I think people will sit and watch this thing just for shits and giggles. I oh, it's fascinating. Completely. This is the beauty though. This is what's so exciting about DeFi, right? I I absolutely want game teams to build that. And they can do it without ever talking to me. They can just take right? the NFTs, take the on-chain metadata and build an entire visual game interface over it that could actually be an interface with the smart contracts. I'm already talking with some artists who want to create, you know, kind of step one would be these cosmetic representations of the DNFTs. So you could pull nice. the on-chain metadata, which is their level of XP, percentage of XP, how much diet they have, the how degen the person is, and generate a PFP nice. that you could have as your Twitter PFP and it would, update dynamically based, on, based on changes yeah in the in how you're playing the game it's, and that's it's a mood so ring cool it's a mood ring pfp <laughs> totally 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 but this, this is, is also i can see yeah, people doing play by plays like somebody's going to do oh. a weekly podcast where they update i guarantee it like that's amazing. brilliant that would be amazing that would be amazing but yeah the key is i mean i would say poker is is a game that i really looked at for inspiration here because poker it is a game of skill. It's ultimately though a game of information. Like the more information you can glean about your opponents, the more of an advantage you'll have. You have to know what to do with the information, obviously. But that's exactly what this is. Asfi is actually the one who pointed it out. The biggest edge you could have on this game is what the other player's liquidity situation is. Because that yeah. will let you predict what they're going to do with their dyad, how they're going to hold on to their position, if they're going to sell what they what price they'll accept on secondary. It becomes a very complex, very human game, which sort of is like the definition of what the best games are. So that's, yeah. that's, the, that's well, the intention here. It's gonna start off that way. I think people are gonna figure out ways to automate it. I, I think someone mm -hmm. will try to apply AI to it. Um, oh, totally. and, I, and I think that uh, I, I just see so many possible ways to make this a lot of fun to participate in and to watch. This is so, no wonder he was so excited. This is fascinating, man. This is so much fun. Awesome. I'm, I'm, oh, I'm so glad you're, you're, yeah, you're totally, totally getting it. This is, this is really yeah, exciting. That's great. Yeah, but thank you. That's the way to keep this in mind though. This, what we are building, what we're deploying is this immutable automated base layer on which we are so excited to see what people build. There, there's things we haven't even thought of yet. Like of every course, day, yeah. I tell somebody about this, they have a new idea for what they can build on top of this to make it more useful or more usable or just more exciting or more fun. But I, I love your idea of sort of the play-by-play, -play, the dashboard. And this again is why we designed this to really incentivize deployment to L2s and to Alt L1s because you know we're deploying the, the main contract on ETH main, even though now gas is kind of less expensive than it was during the, the boom times, the, the, the real, how real time the protocol is all of these automated steps of minting, the burning, everything, it's done by incentivizing 
these bots who, you know, through MEV and other things are bots, they're already on these blockchains. So the lower the gas fee on the chain, the more real time this whole thing is, the more you get to that sort of stadium like real time game feeling dashboard where people could really be competing by the second to to gain an advantage on each other. But yeah, the, the other thing is, I mean, audit strategy automation protocols are probably going to be one of the first things that people build here, where Heck you yeah. basically use AI to automate the ideal distribution. You know, people will pull their DNFTs into these protocols and allow tokenized exposure to that. We want we want all of that. We want as many different sure. protocols and abstraction layers to pile on top of this as possible. <sighs> that will only strengthen the position of Dyad as a stablecoin. On, on one hand, this is going to be um, the founders of the protocols that utilize this the way you were talking about earlier. It's going to be a dream to have. On the other hand, I, you know, I was just talking to Scoopy Truples of Alchemix a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. And he was he was talking about how much of his time is managing liquidity strategies instead of the project. But this this seems like so much fun. I, I, I really I can see like you know, you guys have to have a way that holders of the NFT can somehow publish what their name of their NFT is so that people, because oh, now totally. I want to, I want to see somebody do a, a prediction market on it and betting on them. I can see that. I love that. Idea. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Totally. All right. Let's let you get back to the description. I'm going to actually go ahead and share the window now, if you don't mind to show yeah, the, the slides. Okay, good. Please. And I don't even know, I don't know if we've covered everything that you, you know wanted what? to that's show or not. That's pretty much it. The last, <laughs> that's, that's the protocol as we have it right now. All exactly right. what I just that's said. So the first awesome. slide, yeah, that's how you, that's how you mint it as a DNFP holder. This is basically ETH up, ETH down. What happens with XP? What effect does XP have? And then the two curves, there's the diet accrual curve, which you can see right here, the, the bottom mm -hmm. 80% or so of DNFPs give their upside exposure to the top 20, top 20 give their downside exposure to the bottom 80. And in return, that last slide, you see this very kind of stylized version of the XP accrual efficiency curve, but it just logarithmically goes to essentially zero as you get towards the top. Wow. Wow. This is amazing. I, 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 I'm excited about it and it stresses me out at the same time, man. <laughs> are, you, are you stressed out thinking that you're going to be having to say watch this and, and play your dnfp position optimally yeah because I, I think that i want to jump into this thing i'm like damn this yeah. looks like so much fun <laughs> i i don't well, i really I, don't have the the uh, i'm probably the wrong person to play it but i definitely would want to play it that's the cool thing about it i think that's also what i love is the i love the incentive models that are in this i think you're going to find a, a ton more that comes out of it and i think hmm. the the ecosystem that expands around it is going to be really fascinating to watch but things like this these are the kinds of things i look at and think oh my god i want to do this and then i'll do it and realize there are people so much smarter than me that should be doing this and not me but well it's fascinating that's where the composing sort of more passive investment strategy protocols come in you know i i think that once this thing is mature maybe five or less percent of all the dnfts will be people who are holding and actively playing and by the time right. you get to that, those are essentially going to be like pros. They'll probably want to tokenize access to their DNFP PL sure. um, for their fans. And you could literally invest in somebody, somebody's skill in playing this game. And I think the other 95% are going to be buried under layers and layers and layers of other protocols so that they're getting, you know, essentially settling on 
the balance sheets of some of these DNFTs that if they were on the secondary market at that point as a whole DNFT would be in the millions of dollars because the protocol will be billions in TVL at that point. So That's I think amazing. that it will it will support all all use cases because it's so composable. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I love that you're doing this. Are you, when, when you launch this, are you launching this kind of radically decentralized? Like we're not touching this again. Is that, is that the plan? When oh, you hit mainnet? 100%. Yes. Nice. Uh, by the time it hits mainnet, we, the team are just other holders. Uh, nice. We have a team allocation. So the way I can get into a little bit how we're raising because even that sure. is Yeah, let's go into that. So right now we're actively raising for a seed round and, you know, once this launches, the DNFTs definitely pass the Howey test. They are not securities. You, we have no control over the protocol. You're buying a piece of something that is immutable and unchangeable. So there's no nice. team really at that point. Before the protocol launches, they are securities. So we're raising from accredited investors and funds only, and we're not doing it publicly. But the way that we're doing it is because there's no company that we can issue you know, safeties or equity in, there's just this immutable protocol. We're allocating 15% of the DNFTs for seed investors, and they have the unique opportunity to directly purchase XP for their DNFTs that uh, will be part of them on launch day. Now, the reason we're doing that is because we need operating capital, but we can't use funds that they're they're investing that will turn into dyad and be part of our collateral vault. That needs to go into the collateral vault. So by selling XP, we're able to use those funds for, to actually build the protocol. And that, you know, it's this kind of line that we're walking. They will absolutely have an advantage on launch day. They'll have the highest XP NFTs, but they'll be playing by the same rules as every retail investor. So they'll be accruing zero XP essentially to those. The retail investors who come in at zero will be accruing XP very, very efficiently and will be able to quickly gain ground on them. Now, to be totally transparent, almost all of our seed investors, their strategy is they're maximizing half of their DNFT. So we're, we're putting a maximum 10,000 XP cap on each of these, these pre-launch DNFTs. There will be no cap once it launches, but we don't want anybody to completely overpower one. They're, they're basically allocating half that will have zero XP on launch day and half that will have the maximum XP on launch day. So they can both accumulate maximum dyad and maximum XP playing both parts of that curve simultaneously. Got so it. that's how we're raising. But obviously, oh, I think that's a brilliant way to do it though. I love this. Oh, that's going to be copied. I mean, yeah. it's, a, I mean, not exactly, but <laughs> this is a really brilliant model. I, I think it's kind of ridiculous for quote unquote decentralized protocols to be raising like they're a private startup. I mean, that just doesn't right. make sense. No, it compromises exactly. it from day one. So yeah, if we're going to really do this, we have to really do it. All of all of the funding has to be through the mechanisms of the protocol. And yeah, this is the this is the way that I think it's going to be the most transparent and the most fair and still get us the funding that we need in order to build this. Thing. Well, I mean, the beauty of it is you're not worried about vesting schedules. You're not worried right. about cliffs or anything else. It's completely totally. in their hands how much they make out of their investment. Right. So oh, that's, completely, yeah. that's the real beauty of this thing is, is it's yeah. up to them. To be totally clear. And the reason this is, this is an accredited investment opportunity only at this stage is because they are absolutely taking a risk on the team that sure. you know, the money they put in for XP, it, there will be a protocol and it will be executed well. So their XP has value. So they are sure. they're definitely taking a bet. But if we do that and we launch successfully, their their investment will basically be liquid on day one. So it yeah, is yeah. different than like the typical private equity 
you know, two to four years, you won't have a liquidity event. So it, no, it they, is different it's, in that it's, way. It's liquid on day one, and yeah. there is no impact on the protocol if they dump it, right? Exactly. I mean, yes. That's, I'm glad that's you pointed the, that out. That's huge. That's the beauty yeah. of it, right? Yeah. Is yeah. is yeah. you don't care. <laughs> yeah. You don't that's care huge. if you they believe dump, it in the long term. You can't dump XP. The worst they could do is take their 15% DNFT allocation and list it all on OpenSea on day one, but that's fine. The mint is free. Whatever. You can, yeah. yeah, it'll just be more for retail to mint. And I, I seriously <laughs> doubt our investors will do that, but that is the most damage they could do. So, fantastic. yeah. So, yeah, so the, let's go through what are the things that keep you up at night? Yeah. Like, so before, what are you worried about? I don't want to get into the previous design, but the last version of the design where basically anybody could come to the protocol and mint dyad if they had the ETH available and it wasn't gated to just DNFT holders, that created this, this really concerning scenario where the protocol would need to maintain and enforce a minimum collateralization across all DNFTs. And we needed an ETH IV oracle, which doesn't exist. We were trying to build an implied volatility oracle, which the further we got into it, the more we realized this is a real, like this is, could be its own company. It's so own product, we, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So we pivoted hard away from that into this new design where it's basically decentralized that the monetary policy is totally decentralized and there's a mechanism for recovering total degen positions that are, that are essentially liquidated I described earlier. So that was, that was my main concern that it was like, this, this fails if it's not, completely redeemable, like every diet needs to be redeemable for a dollar's worth of ETH, regardless of market conditions. If that ever fails, the protocol has failed. So, yeah. you know, I, and I didn't want to solve that with just brute force over collateralization requirements. You know, the way MakerDAO does it, it's 150%, which fine, that that's safe in most situations until it's not safe, until ETH crashes more than that, or it's overly conservative and it just inhibits growth for no real reason decentralizing that collateralization decision across 10,000 holders with direct negative consequences on the value of your asset if you get that wrong, but isolated to each 10,000 of the protocol, that was a breakthrough that, that actually made me a lot less nervous about, about the fundamental security. I'd say now the things that really keep me up are other attack surfaces, right? We don't have a governance attack surface. There is no governance which right. is good, but really like smart contract level things, like how sure. could people mess with our bot driven updates, running the mint, the burn functions, updating the DNFT metadata. Can you get into the mempool and front run any of that stuff? Like really talking with people in the MEV community, understanding what are all of the attack surfaces on something like this? Really, I mean, the, the protocol itself, is fairly simple. Right now, our biggest engineering challenge is getting the code to reconstruct our perfect logarithmic XP curves in practice. And that's a lot of what the user testing is going to be. And all of our testing is now, but it is a very simple, basically single contract protocol. Security, security, security of all sure. kinds is really our focus. And that is going to be the bulk of the work that we do leading up into launch in November. It's just going to be running this through every kind of ringer we can think of to make sure that it's secure. Sure. Will you be able to do a vault before launch? I mean, a vault, an audit before launch? Absolutely. Yeah. We have audit with Trail of Bits and Open Zeppelin, both as part nice. of our roadmap. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, um, definitely. Is the vault smart contract based or is, are you, I don't even know if you could use it for this, or is this a 4626 
type vault. That's interesting. We looked we looked a lot at that that new primitive. And actually, I'm connected with with Joey, the other Joey, Fade yeah, Joey, Centaur. one of the main, yeah, and one of the main kind of originators of of that, and and now kind of evangelist. You know, it's it's the kind of thing that I feel is really exciting. It's not battle tested to the degree that I'd put it into an immutable contract that would be handling you know, potentially billions of dollars of, of money at this point. I, I think okay. that, you know, because there are other thoughts like we're going to have all this ETH in there. Should it be automatically, you know, create a, a validator with it? If we have all of this, can we earn oh. yield on it in some way? And all that there, we are probably leaving money on the table by not doing that. But the second you introduce any other stuff you do other than just holding yeah. ETH, Right, it becomes less less decentralized. Just by sure. definition, it becomes less decentralized. Well, and, and more, and more vulnerable. Like, yeah, exactly. More vulnerable. It starts being like, well, can we have like one very simple time gated governance mechanism, and that becomes well, should we make this governable? And before you know it, we have a DAO with DAO politics and weird voting things and concentration of I know all. I think we draw a very 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 hard line around that stuff, yeah. but. Again, people who want to do versions, forks of this that have more of that, we strongly encourage it. We're actively building tooling for that. And we encourage, you know, forks that compose around DNFTs to be as experimental as possible. I mean, fundamental nice. to this design, a fork could blow up, even a fork that holds a huge number of DNFTs and nothing, none of that contagion can travel back upstream to the fundamental protocol. Love that. Yeah, I'm fascinated by by the concept of being able to fork this and and what might be possible because I think people will get really creative with what they do with it. Totally, That's totally. Cool. And we want to. I mean, the UI. You know, we're building a front end to this. We encourage anybody else to build a front end to it. That's that's one of the nice things about smart contracts. But our front end that we're working on, we are going to integrate it with one of our basically our our forking protocols, so that when you hold a DNFT. There's a very simple UI for creating a fork of this and, and composing that around the DNFT that you hold. Because right. we really, we're really, really focused. I mean, this team, it'll cease to be in control of the core contracts at all on deployment. But our prime mission is going to be encourage, expand the circulation of Dyad. And the best way to do that is getting other protocols to compose with us. So we're going to be focused, our engineering team is going to be focused on creating tooling and creating designs and just creating as easy as possible for other teams and other projects to compose with us. Love it. Do you, do you envision if people say forked onto Avalanche or Phantom that they would be still forking using ETH based wrapped ETH or whatever on those protocols or would they yeah, be able to utilize great... FTM or AVAX? Yeah, that's a really good question. Ideally those forks that would be on the alt L ones would use the chain native gas tokens. So yeah, Phantom good. FTM, AVAC. Yeah, I, I think that the way that that would basically compose back to the DNFTs, the, the, the core DNFTs that live on ETH, there would just be composed with one of the more robust bridges and there would be basically batched transfers to to kind of node, like add whatever's happening on Phantom, for example settle that back onto the on-chain metadata based balance sheet for the DNFTs around which it's composed. Um, nice. And that would just be an integration with, yeah, one of the bridges that, that, you know, right now I think there's a lot of sort of competition slash survival of the fittest happening in the multi-chain bridge world. 
And by sure. the time that this is happening, hopefully somebody has has risen to the top and is is really battle tested to the point where we not we the team, but whoever's building this other fork on Phantom or whatever is able to trust it to compose with that that interface between the two. Awesome. But yeah, that's to have dyad on Phantom, for example, that we're trying to incentivize the actual forking of the protocol to be FTM based versus just taking dyad tokens from ETH mainnet and and transferring them via bridge directly uh, onto yeah. phantom for example it's funny our our founding engineer z80 is kind of cut his teeth in the phantom ecosystem with the bite masons ah. and bite masons i'd say is oh I, nice I of course have ultimate respect for that crew yeah. justin beavis is al and uh, i think definitely definitely a role model in DeFi. That's so the, that's uh, the first person I phantom. thought of for forking this on phantom. That's totally because totally. I interviewed Justin and I just like their entire philosophical approach to everything they do. And so, yeah. and he's so impressive. So I, that's the first person I thought of is like, they'll be, they'll crank this out. Yeah. This is, yes. so what happens when you, when you, how do you spend your days after you launch? Yeah, basically, like I said, I think things are going to get even more hectic if you can believe that. It's just going to be, no, I do. you know, essentially, we're we're just other holders at that point. We want to sort of set an example for other DNFT holders and sort of what they should be doing to increase the value of their DNFTs and increase the value of the protocol, which is just finding ways to, you know, kind of combination biz dev, tooling, building, building frameworks, basically, for other teams to as easily as possible build around dyad. We just want to make it as, you know, I, I really think about it as like, you're a gardener and you have like a beautiful old cactus. I'll, I'll use cactus for example, because I'm in California, but you want to create an environment around the cactus. You want to make the soil a certain way. You want to clear the right amount of shade, the right amount of sunlight exposure. You just want to, you, you are not the cactus. You can't directly get into the cactus and control where it's putting its growth, you can create an environment for it to naturally be healthy and naturally grow as far as possible. So that's what the team's job becomes post-launch. Nice. We're not, nice. there's no changes we can make to the protocol, but we can create an environment around the protocol with combination of tooling, biz dev outreach, just getting involved in different communities and really trying to get all the other DNF holders, DNFT holders to do the same, to just expand the hell out of this thing and, and get more and more people involved. And again, because it's it's truly decentralized and truly immutable, you're not, you know, there's this weird sort of hesitancy to compose in some cases because like the protocol creators want to own what they're composing on. That is 100% the case with this. If you're composing over DNFTs, you own those DNFTs as thoroughly as we own our DNFTs, even though we created this thing. The, nice. it, 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 it's exactly the same in terms of on-chain reality at that point. And we're designing specifically for that. No, nah, that's, that makes total sense. Look, I think, I actually think that the post launch is, sounds like a lot of fun. So I think you guys 100%. are out of the last, I think that's uh, out there yeah. spreading it. That's awesome. That's For awesome. Sure. Wow. All right. Anything else we should know about Dyad and, and, and that we didn't touch. Oh, you know what? I think we just made a general assumption that we both understand, but just to make sure that the general listenership understands we never actually touched on how that model actually maintains this, the, the, the $1 stabilization, oh, right? Sure. I mean, you know, we, we just assume that, oh, well, they understand if it gets over, it goes up and we sell it. So just real quick, walk through that and make sure we touch on that for everybody. Yeah. So the whole, the whole 
point of the XP, the curves accruing value to your DNFP, it's to, to incentivize you to take your dyad stable tokens that you're able to mint as a holder and put them into or leave them in the dyad buffer vault or the damping vault. Because that vault that's inside of the contract, the protocol has the ability to burn the tokens that are in there if the price of ETH is going down. And that, re that basically constricts the total supply. So that let's say there are, there's $10 million in worth of ETH in the collateral vault, and there's 10 million diet in circulation. Let's say then the price of ETH goes down 20%. So now there's $8 million worth of value in the ETH collateral vault, and the protocol all of a sudden needs to destroy 2 million diet tokens because right. right now, 10 million diet tokens outside, 8 million of value in the vault. If everybody goes to redeem, 2 million people are going to be left empty handed and that threatens the peg. So the, the protocol needs to immediately burn 2 million diet tokens. Those tokens can be found in the buffer vault, in the, in the damping vault. So it can right. burn 2 million tokens from that vault. All of a sudden, the total circulating supply is reduced by 20%, just like ETH went down 20%, and we're still at our collateral, fully collateralized level. Now, when yeah. the price of ETH goes up, the protocol does the opposite. If now there's 8 million tokens, but the value of ETH in the vault is $12 million, the protocol will burn for, will, will mint 4 million tokens and allocate those tokens. The tokens will go right into the vault, but they'll enter into the balances of the 10,000 NFTs according to how much XP they have and how much diet they have. So that's, right. that's how the whole protocol, that's how the protocol maintains the peg. And that's why it's hard peg. We don't rely on any sort of arbitrage mechanism or, you know, external actors. I mean, it is, it is bots executing these functions, but they're directly incentivized by a payment for execution functions. It is a hard okay. peg that kind of allows the protocol to directly control circulating supply. It's awesome. No, that makes sense. Total makes sense. Wow. All right. I'm exhausted, but it's exciting. I, I, yeah. I re now I see why SV's jumped all over this because this is, this is exactly up his alley for the kinds of things he loves to think about and talk about and play about. So that's, that's great. Um, all right. So I have two more things. First, where do everybody find out about it? Is there a, is there a sign up process to get on the notification? Is there a whitelist? I mean, what's the, what's the process? Yeah, it's, it's, we're, we're moving so quickly with protocol design that we haven't really put that in place yet. It's also going to be again, launch, you know, mid November. So it's a little early for, for that, but if there's real demand for it, we'll absolutely set it up. The best way to get in touch is just my Twitter, which is at Joey Roth. Cool. My DMs are I'll open. Put that in the show notes. Yeah. Anyone who wants to reach out about this, I would love to hear your thoughts. If you're interested in possibly becoming a seed investor, we can absolutely have that conversation. And if you just are curious to discuss more of this or have some thoughts on what the design is as we laid out in this episode, the more conversations I have about that with people who are into this stuff the more the protocol will benefit. All of the really good ideas after I started talking about this have come from conversations like this. Nice, so nice. yeah, please, please don't hesitate to DM me. Awesome. And then I asked the same question of everybody on the show, who is, or what project or person in the DeFi space you have a, a ton of respect for, or that you think is, you know, really critical to kind of your perspective or your approach to how things should be happening in DeFi or, anybody else that you think is important for whatever reason that may be? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. So first I'm going to say, I'm going to shout out the Beanstalk team and community. I think that 
you know, Beanstalk is an algo stable. So I have my thoughts around true algo stables ever, ever really becoming like a, what I want Dyad to become, which is a, a real world currency, institutional grade, completely secure. But I think that what they've achieved with their design, with their community vibe, and really with like the, the experimental, very progressive concepts that they've successfully implemented into something that is working really well, despite the governance hack, from a technical standpoint, from an engineering standpoint, it's unbelievably creative and impressive. And it's, I would say that their protocol design is a work of art. I have nice. such tremendous respect for that project. And I think that we, the, the stablecoin space needs projects like that, that are going to be pushing the envelope with what's possible, trying experimental things, really just like continuing to progress the frontier of what types of incentive mechanisms and tools can be used for this type of this type of protocol. So I, I have just tremendous respect for the Beanstalk team. And that's, you know, that's sort of ASVIS introduced me to a number of people from there. Maud is yeah. another person who I think is actually on the team who I've met in it, who's a super smart dude. Yeah, so definitely Beanstalk. I mentioned Byte Masons. I think that in terms of like, you want to talk about a builder clan or crew. I think that what Justin has done with like that culture and the degree of excellence and just the projects they take on and really like their, just kind of like their, their fundamental values, I think is like a blueprint for, for any other builder team or clan in DeFi. I think that they they definitely set the standard there. And then, yeah, I, I gotta, I gotta say like liquidity and rye because, you know, despite that I, you know, I'm clearly building something that I think will go places those haven't. I'm absolutely standing on their shoulders. Diet is standing on their shoulders. They've both proven that you can have a fully autonomous immutable protocol that, that achieves real TVL and creates yep. a stable product. And yeah, they they are they've absolutely paved the path there. And I, I look up to them and they're a hundred percent inspirations for this. So I could keep going, but I'll say those are the three that <laughs> those come are, to mind. I those have, are all a, fantastic choices. I respect a lot of a lot of builders and a lot of people in this space. I think it has attracted some really smart people. Yeah, it's the best part of doing this show is the people I get to meet like you and, and others who are kind of mission-driven, mission-driven, incentive-driven, but really determined to just advance things, right? And that's mm -hmm. that to me is the most valuable thing about being in this space is that I'm just constantly being blown away by the next level and the next level and the next level. So I'm, I am, like I said, I've probably said 75 times since we got on this call, I'm very excited about what you're doing. I, I, I love it. I'm going to see how I can be a part of it for the for the, for the but really, uh, really appreciate you coming on and telling us all about it. So thank you very thank, much. Thank you so much for having me. This was really, really fun. You asked excellent questions. You, you drew a pretty good explanation out of me. I think depending on who I'm talking to about this and like what my caffeine level is, I can sound like that meme of the dude with the, the pin board like going back and forth, or I could <laughs> sound a lot more coherent. So yeah, thank you for that. And again, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm so happy that you, you clearly picked up on what we're going for here. And we'll absolutely keep you posted on our on our progress. Awesome. Awesome. And I'll have you on after uh, after you launch too. So after perfect, you push the perfect. button and we'll see I how you're really, feeling. I really look forward to that. I really look cool. forward to that. Cool. All, All right, right, Brian. Thank you, man.